This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the All-Star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. We've got riders on today. Eno Saris from The Athletic, Kylie McDaniel from ESPN, and Mark Carrig from The Athletic. We'll start with Eno Saris. Eno, there's two things we do with Eno. We talk baseball and we talk beer. He's one of the best. And Eno Saris now joins us from The Athletic. Eno, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's gonna, you're right. It's going to drag on. It's going to be an interesting winter. It's going to be a real long one. And, you know, I, I kind of think about last year from, like, where we were at the winter meetings and into January. You know, when we were growing up as kids, you know, baseball was basically done before Christmas. And no one mm-hmm. really paid attention until spring training. But now... I kind of like how this drags throughout the entire offseason and now leads us into spring training to where we're just not like ditching baseball and let's wait to the Super Bowl. It's like we now have baseball. It truly is year round now. And I think this year, uh, no question with all the free agents and what what are teams going to do and how the virus is going to dictate what everything happens with the business of baseball. I, I kind of like how it, it, it's lengthened out now. Yeah, well, you know, you don't have to go rush and write a piece <laughs> during a during a holiday. But um, yeah, no, I, I I think it's actually part is was on purpose by baseball. You see that they space out award season and the winter meetings, the DM meetings. It's all sort of carefully planned out to to last a while and to keep the news cycle going. But then on top of that, I think that there was somebody did some research at some point and said the teams do better on on late contracts. And so teams see that and they're like, okay, we're going to wait. And especially this year, there's going to be the waiting game, especially for, I think, like guys that might get a one or two year deal. And they're going to say, well, you know, do I want to take this uh, one year deal and try to get back on the market or is there a better deal out for me? Um, and uh, I just, I, I don't see this uh, going very fast. You know, I remember, uh, you know, going back to last year in December, being at the uh, Manchester Hyatt down in San Diego and Garrett Cole signs and all the Yankee people are going nuts. And then Rendon signs with the angels. And I, you know, I think about this world that we're going into now, this is where the A's thrive, right? When you're talking one year deals, you're talking about late signings. Wouldn't you say when you look at, you know, Billy Bean is still here. Billy Bean, David Force, in this type of environment, this is where the A's thrive. Yeah, it's true. I remember even Cespedes was a was a kind of a January signing. I think it came after some other trades where it seemed like talent was leaving Oakland. So they're they're always got to sort of pick up their sleeve in Oakland. They're always trying uh, to win every any given season, which is something I really respect. Um, and so they they'll be there. The only problem is that. Uh, you know, uh, Kylie McDaniel over ESPN did pr- projections, and he said he had 30 one-year contracts in the top 50 uh, free agents. So, I mean, yes, it's is good for the A's, but also it means that every team might act like the A's. <laughs> and so you wonder, you wonder if they'll get scoped, uh, they'll get scooped on some of those just because every team's acting like that. Yeah, I, I got to think. I mean, obviously, your age is a big deal, but. I got to think where we are, knowing that the CBA is coming up. Like, if I was a free agent, I got to think a one-year deal is not a bad deal. Like, you know, you're not going to get what you probably think you would get long-term. So wouldn't you as a free agent think, eh, a one-year deal might not be bad? I feel bad for guys, though, that 
you know, kind of made it to free agency and thought, you know, this would be my big deal. Somebody like Brad Hand has been a closer for so long, has had great ERAs, you know, seems like a great uh, pitcher, but they had a one-year $10 million option on the table for every team in baseball because they put they put that contract on waivers. Any team could have had him for one year and $10 million, and every team said no. So he's going to have to go down to something maybe like a Will Smith contract or like a, you know, a three and 20 deal. Or like you said, you'll take a one, a one and eight or a one and nine. Uh, but it means that there's a ton of guys like that. Tommy LaStella might take a one year deal. Jackie Bradley Jr. Might even take a one year deal. Jock Peterson. Um, and those guys would normally get three year deals, I think. And then, and then you get the, the, the true one year deal guys after that. And I think for our fan base, the big question is Marcus Simeon. I, I, I got a good feeling that Marcus is going to be back with the Oakland Athletics. How, how do you feel about it? That's interesting. I mean, I think probably not unlike a deal that uh, he could have gotten where maybe he was talking about four and 60, you know, or something like that. That doesn't seem like that seems to be on what, what Oakland has done in the past. But if his, his price drops down to like Chris Davis territory, for example, um, or if it's just, you know, two and, or, or one and, and one and 15 or one and 10, they could do what the, um, Rays did with Charlie Morton, where they just have one guy, um, on their, on their roster that, um, has a decent contract and everyone else is super cheap. I mean, that's, that's what the Rays did with Charlie Morton. They had a one year, $15 million deal on him basically. And, and so I could see the, the, the A's having one surprise in him like that for sure. By the way, isn't it like the speaking of the Rays, obviously just lost to the Dodgers in the World Series. It's so funny how the Dodgers went from being a team that, hey, they've won a lot, but they haven't won at all. That's great. They've kept their prospects, but they haven't won at all. And is that has been has that been the been, been the right way to go about it? Now, all of a sudden, the Dodgers win the World Series and they're the model organization. Now it's like, oh, we want to be like the isn't it how the narrative has changed? All they had to do was win the World Series. Now everybody wants to be like the Dodgers. No, you know, I think one thing that people miss is that you can have an idea of what your team is and say, okay, you can have even a projection and say, okay, this team is going to win 85 uh, games. And you can say, well, that's maybe back end wild card. It's a decent team. Well, team projections have huge error bands on them. We're talking about like 10 wins does not break your model. It just means that was a crazy year. So that means an 85-win team can win 95 or 75, and it's still kind of like, okay, yeah, that could happen. So what I think you should do in baseball is build a team to be good. You know, try to be good. Try to be good, and in the years where everything breaks right, go acquire some guys at the deadline and try to push it. And in the years where you're not good, trade away guys. That's what the A's do, right? They try to be good every year, and some years they win 90, and some years they win 80. Well, I mean, you think about the run with the Braves, and now the Dodgers are having a run like that. But I, I think you said it perfectly, though. I mean, under Billy Bean and David Forrest, these guys don't punt. Like, they always right. try to win. Does, does it always work out? No. But for the most part, they've been in the playoffs basically half the time they've been in charge. And I think, I think we all need to step back and realize, you know, th- this is something special that no matter what the obstacles are in front of them, they're always trying to win. Yeah, yeah. And I would say that the difference between the A's and the, and, uh, and the Dodgers, for example, is a little bit of that payroll. Because, you know, you, you can build a team that wins a lot of regular season games in the postseason, not having like a Mookie Betts, uh, not having incredible depth. You know, the Dodgers... Um, their their starting rotation depth ended up making their bullpen better with May going to the bullpen and so on and so forth. So their depth really did mean something. Um, and, and some of that is acquired by money um, and, and being able to trade for Mookie Betts and, and pay him that big salary. So, you know, I, I could see the A's finally winning more postseason games if they had more investment in terms of salary. But I still give them so much respect for, for winning uh, the, way they, the, the way that they do year in and year out. So you hear from hitters that if it's early in the season when it's cold or late in the season when it's cold, they want pitchers to have control. Because if you guys, if you got guys up there throwing 100 miles an hour and they don't know where it's going, that's pretty scary. So there's kind of been this debate, right, about uh, what pitchers 
can use to get better grip with the ball, whether it's pine tar, whether it's some type of, you know, bullfrog, sunscreen, whatever it is, you know, hitters, and you just did an article on this. I can just tell you, if you talk to a hitter, uh, I'd rather have him have pine tar and know where the ball's going at 100 miles an hour versus that thing being like a cue, uh, a cue ball and it's cold and he has no idea where it's going on. Where, where, where do you weigh in on that? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a, a good point, especially with there's evidence that the seams are lower on the baseball uh, over the last couple of years, and that's been part of why the ball's flying out. There's so many homers. So seams being lower, uh, sometimes when you mud up the ball, in drier places, the mud actually becomes kind of slick. It becomes kind of dusty. You know, you talk about players talk about in Arizona, the mudded up ball just feels dusty and, and even harder to grip. So I definitely um, have some respect for that argument. But the one thing that I would say in response is hit by pitches are at an all time high. You know, the, the, the hit by pitches in baseball, there's never been so many people hit by pitches. So I, I don't know that. Um, you know, you, is the argument that if they didn't have pine tar, there'd be even more hit by pitches than than, than most of all time. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I think that we also look when you look at uh, what happens when you use pine tar, you increase your spin rate by like 300 RPM. You change the movement, you get part more movement on the ball. So there are definitely advantages to the pitcher beyond just grip. I mean, they are getting bendier breaking balls out of this situation. Well, and then is that why there's more strikeouts? I mean, there's more strikeouts than ever before. And we thought we talk about the, the, the three true outcomes, but is it just the fact that pitchers are nastier than ever before? There's definitely a big part of that. We're pitch designing. The pitchers are using the grip, you know, and they're not only just using pine tar or whatever. They're like boiling Pepsi down and like, uh, they all have like these, these concoctions, you know, CBD oil, uh, Shaving cream, boil down shaving cream, boil down Sprite. I mean, they're doing all these concoctions, throwing it on their fingers in front of the machines and seeing what the machines say works best for them. So, I mean, it's, it's almost like an arms race. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely one part of the picture is that spin rate is up, uh, movement is up, pitchers are, are, are able to, to do more things with the ball um, because, of the, because of the pine tar. Okay, wait a minute. What? Boiling down Pepsi or Sprite? How does this work? <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, it's a whole thing. You gotta you gotta boil down the Pepsi and add some pine tar, and I mean they're just making these super grip substances. And 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 some guys are replacing the Pepsi with Sprite and like trying to do things with CBD oil because those are clear, um, and they are a little bit worried about you know enforcement. But on the MLB side, in my reporting, um, MLB announced this before this year to teams that they were going to try and enforce it and. I mean, did you notice? Nope. I just think I just think it's really hard to enforce. I mean, one of the ones, one of the most popular ones is sunscreen and rosin. You're not going to ban sunscreen and you give them rosin at, at the uh, at, at the mound, you know? <laughs> yeah, you, you you can't SPF 30. You can't take that to the mound. You know, I exactly. I, I think about this. It, it's like back in the day, like the Raiders were known for stick them, right? Uh, less uh-huh. days and but what they do now in the NFL is they now have these gloves that all the receivers that like like stick them. Yes, I mean I've put on these gloves. I mean you stick the, the glove. So why does <laughs> baseball just come up with something and say use this? Everybody can use it. Everybody's good with it because that was like I, I I remember you know when there was that issue going on with the Yankees. And Aaron Boone didn't want to talk about it because he doesn't want to call out the other pitching staff because Aaron Boone knows his pitching staff's doing it. Yeah, well, yeah. We just come up with a substance that says universal. You can use this. It help. It helps with grip. We all want to have better grip because it means the hitters should be safer. Why don't we just come up yeah. with a, a universal substance? I think I think that might be where baseball's headed. That's 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 what I've reported that they're that they're considering that. I mean, I think that um, one of the easiest ones is just pine tar because the hitters get pine tar. Just give the pitchers a pine tar stick on the on the mound and, and just be done with it. But um, one of the ways that other uh, leagues have figured this out is by doing tacky balls. And um, I think the one reason that baseball hasn't done that is, um, you know, let's say you do a tacky ball and you keep all the strikeouts because you're able to spin the ball, but you just get rid of home runs because the tacky ball doesn't fly as far. Now we've got a game where there's no home runs and just as many strikeouts as before, and that would be kind of not ideal. So I think 
they're thinking about this also within the context of what do we want offense to look like and what do we want, um, who do we like, how do we want to manipulate the game? You know, Tom Hamilton for uh, the voice of the Indians going to join us in a little bit. And I talked to him earlier today and he, he was mentioning how they had a game that was a one, nothing game that went three hours and 40 minutes, one, nothing <laughs> like, like, like what does, I mean, you, you've been researching this stuff. What does baseball need to do? How do you how do you speed up the pace and make this game more of an entertaining game? What what, what needs to happen? Oh, man, I think I would take the um, I, I'd do a throw a pitch clock and um, uh, tell the hitters to get back in the box. Um, I think there is some time to to be gained there from uh, that sort of walking around the mound. What we have shown in sort of analytics is that. Um, pitchers are, are taking longer on the mound in between pitches because if you take longer between max reps, like to speak lifting, you know, if you take longer between those, you can do more, right? You can throw the ball harder if you have a bigger rest in between. Um, and so uh, I, I think that if we do a pitch clock and hit and get the hitters back in the box, we can speed up that. Um, I think I might consider lowering the mound a little bit uh, to deal with the strikeouts and see if between those two things, I lower velocity a little bit, lower the strikeouts, and put more balls in play. That's, that would be my plan. It's pretty simple. Uh, we've done things like that before in baseball. Like, we've, we've screwed this amount before. Um, and I think that we can do with, with the game what we want in order to make it look the way we want. Yeah, isn't it funny when you get a guy like Tommy Lasella? Like, all of a sudden you see what the difference the lineup looks like. When a guy makes contact, we're talking about, you know, like DJ LeMahieu. When you take a guy who actually puts the ball in play on a consistent basis, isn't it crazy how, like, he immediately stands out? Yeah. Yeah. And But the one good thing is there will be – like, baseball does um, – uh, they create opportunities for balance to be found again. So we all saw Tommy Lestella, and we, we see DJ LeMahieu, and we see that, like, the Dodgers had the best strikeout rate in baseball last year's batters. Um, and they went all the way through. We see that strikeout rate predicted every series in this last postseason, except for the ones the Rays won. So every other series was was by batter strikeout rate. So, you know, if you see all those things, then some team this offseason is going to say, I need DJ LeMahieu because I need I need a better strikeout rate at the top of my lineup. Right? I even need Tommy LaStella. Um, and so the market can kind of go back and forth. Like Michael Brantley, you know, those type of players – they are going to get maybe maybe a little bit more than they think. Maybe they'll be the guys that actually get multi-year deals. But um, the, the market is going to value those guys because strikeout rate does mean something. What do you think it's going to be like this offseason, whether it's Francisco Lindor or whoever? Maybe the Cubs want to get rid of Chris Bryant or maybe the Rockies and, and Arenado or Story or whatever. But if you've got a prize guy and you want to go out and trade him, and you want to get prospects back, these prospects haven't played a base, a real baseball game in over oh, a year. Man. And they're all and like, scouts, scouts haven't seen them. What do you do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it has to be an established scout that you saw maybe in 2018. Um, there's instructs, so hopefully there's some sharing of video or some, uh, some something, data at least, that, that's just happening right now. But that doesn't always – the guys at Instructs aren't always like the very best prospects. I don't think like Gavin Lux for the Dodgers is, is at Instructs. So, um, you know, there is that, uh, I think, I think it's also a really terrible time to be selling Francisco Lindor because um, he's a great shortstop, but this market has Marcus Simeon, Didi Gregorius, um, uh, Ha Seung Kim from, uh, from Korea um, and Anderson Simmons on the market. I mean, that, that's a pretty good shortstop market. Um, and you're going to see, uh, you're going to see people wait. I think Marcus Simeon might be the last guy to sign. Uh, you know, one of the last guys. I think Marcus Simeon and Marcus Stroman actually are going to be among the last to sign because they have to wait for people like Trevor Bauer to sign. And they have to wait for people like uh, Francisco Lindor to be traded, you know. So there's going to be uh, in the middle there, those, those guys that might still get three or four-year deals, they're going to wait the long. Do you think we'll see any, I mean any, long-term Big money deals this offseason. I I think Real Muto and Springer will get somewhere around five and a hundred. I, I I think that the market still does that. If you look at them, they're the top guys. They're not twenty seven. 
you know, they're not 27 like um, like or 28 like Manny Machado and and Bryce Harper were when they got their big contract. So you know, they they are not um, you know the very very best prospects, uh, very best free agents where like they're 27, they're healthy, they do all things. They're 30, they're 31, but still they're the best of this market. We saw Mookie Betts get 300 million because he was so young as a free agent, and I think we're going to see Rumoto and Springer get about five and 100 each. Uh, we have breaking news. Our uh, Commander Cody, uh, Cody, what are you predicting? Hot take uh, Monday? Oh, uh, the Mets. I think the Mets are going to get both of those guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah, everyone's been pointing to Real Muto uh, landing with the Mets because he's the top guy. Steve Cohen is the new owner over there. He wants to make a splash. Uh, Springer would make sense for them, too. The one thing I would say is maybe that would be in tandem, uh, Springer with maybe a move for Lindor where they give up one of their outfielders because the one thing that the Mets do have are a few corner outfielders. They're missing a center center fielder. If they were going to play Springer in center, um, then maybe that'll be a good fit for them. But they'd still probably trade someone like Brandon Nimmo uh, to make that make that work out. But I, I think that's interesting. I hadn't heard anyone say that, and that, that, that would make sense to me. Wow. Daryl Strawberry, Gary Carter, and Ron Darling and uh, Dwight Goodner not walking through that door. Are we saying all the big names going to the – what are we – Springer, Riamuto, and now Lid- all going to the Mets? That would be incredible. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be that'd be a, a one-year makeover, right? Springer, Riamuto, and Lindor, Lindor is like the a whole new middle of the lineup. <laughs> one thing is none of those guys pitch, you know, and, and they, they definitely – uh, their starting rotation was hurting it down the stretch. Well, we got to look at the A's, and I just wonder, heading into this offseason, I know I, you know, you're going to look at Liam Hendricks, you're going to look at Marcus Simeon. Um, for the most part, I think they believe they've got their starting five. Uh, we just talked to Scott Emerson, uh, pitching coach. Uh, maybe they can go out and make a deal, get an, another veteran guy on, on a one-year deal. But Houston, I don't think is going to be as good. I still have no idea how the Angels are going to get 27 outs. Mariners are rebuilding. Rangers, who knows? I Do, do you still view in this offseason before Billy and David make moves, do you still see the A's as the favorites in the West? Um, the one thing about the Astros, though, is that they, they did seem to find some pitching, uh, but they are going to lose Michael Brantley. Um, and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll maybe take a step back. I think it'll be, uh, they'll be, those are the two at the top. And I think the A's are probably out front, especially since they, they haven't yet gotten anybody. So if they went and got like, you know, Cesar, they could probably have an off season where they get like Cesar Hernandez to play second or Tommy Lestella, unless the market gets really excited about Tommy Lestella. Um, they could get maybe, um, somebody like, um, Hmm. I wonder if you could like Drew Smiley uh, for the bullpen, you know, with a little bit of length there, or maybe someone like Garrett Richards, uh, who could be in the in the rotation or, or in the bullpen, um, and then maybe one more bat if it's not if it's Simeon or maybe it's the uh, Korean shortstop. I could see them doing. I mean, the stuff that I'm adding up here is we're talking about sort of 15 to 20 million when you all add it up. You know, I think they might have that to spend. All right. Uh, are you shocked at all that A.J. Hinch and Alex Cora didn't even have a one-year suspension and they're back in the game? Uh, I, I don't know. I think that one of the things that's really hardest about modern society is, like, deciding when someone has, you know, uh, has, uh, has done enough punishment, like what enough punishment is, what redemption looks like, you know. I, I don't I don't know. I, I'm a little bit surprised. Um, you know, Hinch gets a, a pretty good team, like a pretty young team in Detroit that like might be good in the next few years. He goes right back into the major leagues. He doesn't have to go to like triple A, um, you know, to, to, to do his penance or whatever. Um, and so, um, yeah. And then Cora was kind of uh, implicated in Houston and in Boston, uh, which is kind of a, 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 and then he gets his old job back right away. So, um, and I also wonder about like Carlos Beltran, like, is he going to be the one that's blackballed on all of them or, or was he just only about the Mets and that's it. So, um, I'm a, I'm a little surprised. Yeah. And I, and I know that, you know, my colleagues, Rick Garoli, um, and, and, um, 
And Andy McCullough, they, they did some reporting that suggests that within baseball, there are people that are not super excited about that either. Yeah, I, I, I guarantee you from uh, our standpoint, not excited at all. Let's end on this. It's winter time. <laughs> it's getting cold. You are the master of beer. You change beers per season. What is Eno Saris <laughs> getting into as you head to Thanksgiving and Christmas? Uh, you know, I, I, I like some stouts. And what, the best ones for me are kind of like these nitro milk coffee stouts. So you get the roasty notes from the coffee and the nitro makes it super smooth and makes it feel like maybe a nice coffee drink or something. Um, and uh, it's just, it warms you up even though it's cold. You know what I mean? Like it's, it just makes sense for the winter. Uh, I, I'm into, there's a one from Alvarado Street called the festerous part of waking up. And uh, I really enjoyed that this past weekend. Isn't it great? I mean, it, it, I can tell you yesterday watching the Raiders and the Chargers, watching the Raiders win, I was drinking big sculpins yesterday from Ballast Point. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like, it's just throughout the year, you have your consistent beers, but then I do like how we kind of change per season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know, the seasonality of beer and then the locality of beer is the, like the two of my favorite things about it almost. Like, when we used to travel, I want to get back to traveling sometime soon, but when we used to travel, one of my favorite things was coming to a city and being like, where's the best beer? Take me to the best beer bar. Take, you know, uh, where, where do I get the best brewery? So uh, that was, uh, that's, that's definitely something I love about beer. Oh, that, yeah, that's the thing. Like when you travel and you go to another town, you got to ask the bartender, okay, what IPAs do you have? You start asking questions because they all mm-hmm. have their own breweries now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's fun. That's fun. Um, and and, it, and it's meaningful because beer is best consumed fresh. And so it is it is better to 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 get it from the source. And then you get the sort of community factor and, and the people that have been there forever and the, 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 the ties to their locations. They almost breweries, local breweries almost always have like great events. You know, they always have like things that tie in like a biking thing or the hashers all run, uh, you know, three miles and end up at the brewery, the stuff like that. So. Um, I've always, uh, I would have enjoyed like the place for the local brew pub in our local society. Maybe we need to do an A's cast live beer slash baseball tour where you and I travel around and do shows from breweries and talk baseball and beer around. 100%. 100%. And you know, they, they, you know, they want us, you know, they want us, they want, they, it's going to be hard for everybody coming out of this. And, uh, and if we could do that, I would hundred percent do that with you. I think that would be a really cool way to shine some spotlights on some local places that are, you know, different communities within the A's diaspora, you know, there's great places from rare barrel field work. Um, you know, uh, the place that's out on the water with, um, faction, um, you know, Temescal, like we could, there's, they would love to have us. I know that for a fact. Eno, we're going to do this. Now that I've thought about that, <laughs> we're going to start the Bay Area, and then we'll expand nationally. But we're going to do this this baseball season. You, me, Cody, beer and baseball. Yes, 100%. I'm into it. All right, buddy. Be well. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, man. From Eno to Kylie McDaniel. Now, Kylie covers baseball for ESPN. And one of the things that we're going to get into is the future of minor league baseball. We'll get into the offseason and the future of what we're going to see in the minor leagues. Kylie, it's always great to have you on A's Cast Live. And uh, we just found out uh, you're you're right by the Masters right now. Yeah, I could probably, uh, I don't know, run. run well, I mean, I'd probably drive there. We'll say it's less than an hour. I'm over here in, uh, in Athens, Georgia with uh, my fiance and some in-laws. Get, actually getting ready for my wedding coming up next week. Oh, well, hey, congratulations to you and your bride. Well, yeah, it hasn't happened yet, but I'll, I'll take your, your congratulations ahead of time. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do it a little bit before because I probably, probably won't be able to talk to you after because uh, you're going to be a little busy. Uh, are you going to be able to do a honeymoon? Uh, yeah, we're looking at doing some stuff that's like within driving distance. Obviously, there's a lot of, you know, sort of mountains and uh, lake, lakes and beaches and things like that we can get to pretty easily. But, yeah, we were thinking about doing Europe, which is going to be on hold for a while. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, that's that sucks. But uh, no, congratulations. Um, you know, it, this is going to be, and we had the commissioner of baseball on our program during the playoffs, and he basically said how the virus goes that will dictate how the off season goes for Major League Baseball. And 
you know, I keep seeing some articles. You know, we just had one written here in the Bay Area about Marcus Simeon and like how much money he could get in free agency. I just think a lot of people are going to be in for a shock. You tell me, what kind of money do you think is going to get thrown around this offseason? Uh, not that much. I think uh, everybody seems to think that the top tier of players will get what they would normally get because those are still the difference makers that teams will make room for. The unclear part is how big that tier of players is because everybody agrees the best players, JT Real Muto, uh, George Springer is right there. Uh, Trevor Bauer, if he looks like he wants to go for a multi-year deal, is also right there. And then it's DJ LeMahieu, Simeon, Marcelo Zuna. We thought maybe Gaussman and Stroman, they both took the qualifying offer, so obviously it doesn't go quite that far. So like we don't know if it's two or three players or five or six. Uh, but beyond that, it's going to be all one-year deals or maybe two-year deals for you know, 20, 25 million total. Um, there's some rumors that there might be some sort of two-year deal types a little more than we would have expected, but like, you know, two times eight, two times 10, that sounds like the surprise deals that are bigger than we think will be like, instead of one times eight, it'll be two times nine. Like it'll be that kind of surprise on the, on the high end. And there'll be a lot of surprises on the low end. Well, and I think about these two guys taking the qualifying offer and Gosman and Stroman. I mean, doesn't that speak volumes right there where a guy says, huh, going into this market, and I'm going to get guaranteed 18.9, I'm jumping all over that. Yeah, and also, like, they're going to be able to hit the market next year the same way that Marcel Ozuna has, that if you can even do just as good as you did in your platform year, you hit the market when there's more money in the market, you still could be the best pitcher on the market. I put out a tweet of, like, the six or seven guys that will be uh, the best starting pitchers. It's not There's not, like, a clear $100 million guy there. So with a good year, Stroman or Gaussman could be the best guy, and they won't have draft kick compensation tied to them. So the odds of getting that, you know, that big, you know, four times 15 for $60 million deal that maybe they would have gotten in a normal year will be back on the table then because the other options are, you know, mid to late 30s, Kershaw, Scherzer, uh, Greenkey, Verlander coming off of Tommy John, uh, Noah Syndergaard coming off of Tommy John, Lance McCullers has already had Tommy John. Like it's a little bit of a motley crew. And those guys, uh, you know, Strum obviously didn't pitch in 2020. So having a good season and still being in his late 20s will help. Galsman had one, you know, shortened breakout year. If he does it again, then, you know, he's a better candidate. And then when you, like I said, combine the no traffic compensation and the better market, and then maybe being the best pitcher, uh, you know, there's still a lot of options there. So you can see how that isn't just them getting short shrift. It could just be like a, a good decision in, you know, almost any year with a slightly depressed market. I, I think it was Mark Grace who said it years ago that if you want to make the most money, be a free agent every single year. And and Trevor Bauer said, and he promised to some friends that he would always just sign one-year deals. I was kind of hoping to see that, what that would be like for a guy that could switch teams every single year, make a ton of money, but you think, he, you think he'll sign the long-term deal? I think he will get offers or interest for three to four years at at least $20 million a year. I don't think that like five times 25 type deal will be there this year. And I think in the event that he's get offered, getting offered three and four and he is looking at the same issue uh, that Stroman and Gaussman looked at, I mean, Bauer's going to have draft pick competition next year. But if he does this again, he will be the best pitcher on the market next year. And there are $100 million players. I mean, the top of next year's market, you got Lindor, Seager, Correa, Story, Baez, Bryant, Freddie Freeman. Like, there will be guys that are worth $100 million. And if you want a pitcher, if he does, again, what he did this year or anything close to it next year, he will be the best option. So he'll have $100 million next year if he doesn't get offered it this year. And so just grabbing that, you know, 25, 32, whatever that one-year deal is he can get, all he needs is two teams that really want a pitcher and have some money and want to bid. Like, you don't think, you know, the Angels would like to try to get Mike Trout in the playoffs. They need a pitcher. He's from Southern California. They've probably got some money. They make a splash almost every offseason. I think there's enough teams that would do that for one year. The reason that pitchers get a lower annual average value on their long-term deals is all the risk around regression and injuries. If you're getting it on a one-year deal and Trevor Bauer thinks he's going to have fewer – uh, injuries and regression than the average pitcher, he is well served to do one year every year. He's going to get more money that way. And I think with the market being down, he now has even more reason to go to one year deal. So then the question is going to be, does he get offered 100, 125 or 65 million? If it's 65, I think he definitely signs a one year deal. If it's 125, I think he takes that. I think it'll probably be between those two numbers. So I don't think he and his agent, Rachel Luba, even know the answer to that yet, but I would tend to guess it's a one year deal and then he'll, he'll get his multi-year deal next off season. You know, the Indians are, are doing what's right with Lindor. If you're going to trade a guy, it's like a house. You put that house out there and you let as many people walk through that house and you try and get the biggest bid. But if the Indians are asking too much, 
you know, we're already kind of being told this could not be a full 162 game season again next year. Is it eh, keep my prospects and wait for Lindor to be a free agent then after the season and, and keep my guys and then throw the big money at them? Do you, do you think it's smart to trade for him now or just wait till he's going to be a free agent? Well, there'd be a chance here for teams that uh, can afford to be bold to take advantage of if the if the price and prospects is set on, all right, Mookie Betts was one year elite player, 162 games, and then obviously that changed after he was traded for. If now the Lindor price is Cleveland wants to make sure they get him out the door because they might announce a 60-game season, we'll assume it's a 120-game season. We'll cut the difference between 160 and 60. And then if you're if you know the price is based on, say, 120, 100, something like that, if you're a team that thinks you got a chance to re-sign him, there is an extra inherent value beyond just what you're getting this year, and there's a chance it could be 162 games, then it's you know time to go in and, uh, and try to scoop up that value and get that elite player. The two issues is Cleveland is very focused on value. That's sort of the, like the unifying principle behind how their front office operates, so I don't think they're going to do that. I think they'd be more than happy to hold him, take the draft picks, and see if they can you know, make the playoffs maybe in the World Series this year. The other issue, and this is somewhat unique, usually when there are multiple $100 million guys in a free agent market, they're not playing the same position, and there's like three different tiers of really good. Next offseason, in my last article at com, I had Seager and Lindor both at nine times essentially $30 million, depending on how the market comes together, maybe nine times 25. So you're talking $200 million plus. The problem is if you're a team that's looking for that kind of player, but you don't want to pay $200 million, and so Seager and Lindor are now out of your sights, you then still have Correa, Story, and Baez all still available at lower prices. And so you can easily walk away from the $200 million. And so I wonder with that many direct substitutions of five different nine-figure guys, does that then bring down the price at the top of that market with Lindor and Seager to the point where you might be able to get them for, you know, 180 when his market value, if he's the only shortstop, might be 230. Like, this is obviously very speculative given that the markets are so uh, volatile, but that, that is an interesting wrinkle that there's that many guys of that caliber that I think it will affect their market. What do you think the market is for Marcus Simeon? I think in a normal year, he could three or four years at 15 or $20 million a year. So, you know, somewhere in that 50 to 80 area. This year, I think he should be able to get multiple years. I think the thing he's trying to avoid, because his entire career has been the same guy, and they had that one outlier year in, I believe it was 2018. Uh, and now he's getting, you know, to, to be on the wrong, uh, wrong side of 30. And he doesn't want to be in that market next year where there's six short stuff that are all better than him, and he has to wait for them to set the market. So he doesn't want to sign a one-year deal. I think that's why he didn't take the qualifying offer. And he should be able to get a two or three year deal for at least 12, maybe 15, maybe as high as 20 million a year for a team that is saying, hey, we're not going to be able to pay that nine figure guarantee for those other shortstops. We think Simeon is clearly better than Andrew Alton Simmons and some of the other guys that are available on sort of a one year deal. We'll go, you know, two times 15, three times 12, something like that. I think he'll probably, depending on how robust the market is, anywhere from 30 to 50, get something reasonably close. Uh, and then to avoid that market, that that uh, market of shortstops next year. You know, if you only offered me twenty million a year, you know how insulted I would be. Throw it right in their face. Yeah, you're just like you know, open up the bottle of Happy Van Winkle and let's start talking real numbers. <laughs> I, I I would be so angry. By the way, are are did you ever see the uh, the NCAA bracket style uh, thing they did with the Mets. I think it came out last year with all the different dysfunctional things that have happened with the Mets, and they they fought each other to a final four. I mean, it was hilarious. But all of a sudden, the Mets are, are they now the most fascinating team this off season? So again, not to refer back to my Twitter, but during the Steve Cohen press conference, a bunch of different people were you know putting out the quotes as he said them. And uh, I was actually talking to a scouting director today, and I was saying, if you get an assistant GM from any team on the phone and say, hey, if you're going in to talk to an owner as an interview for one of these open GM jobs, what do you present? And the answer is always something close to the same thing, which is we've got to staff up, we got to find and keep good people, we got to put value in scouting and in numbers, we got to like you know use information as it needs to be used. We're not going to go too far into one side or the other. And then, oops, sorry, the dogs are getting excited. Uh, and then as we do that. Uh, make the best decisions we can. And I go, after the guy finishes saying that, I go, okay, and how many teams do you think are doing that? Because that seems super obvious what you're saying. Like everybody on earth, like you, me, we would all say the same thing. And the guy says, eh, probably four or five teams are actually doing that right now. (laughs) 
And so it's like sort of amazing that it seems very simple, the things that you should do as like just a high-minded rhetoric of how to run a team, but it seems like no team actually does it. And so then you take the Mets, who have one of the worst ownership groups under the Wilpons, the old group, in sports. Like it's, you know, Daniel Snyder, it's, you know, uh, formerly Peter Angelos with the Orioles. It's like a small group of teams, you know, Donald Sterling with the Clippers, that were just actively making the team worse on like a daily basis. Uh, and so now that you have a guy that has way more money than everybody else, he really wants to win. He wants to give it to baseball people and let them make decisions. It seems super basic. Like that was some of the responses to my tweets, which was how can they go from the worst to the best in terms of how good of a job and how attractive of a place to work that they are just because they have a competent owner. It's like, well, it turns out competent in terms of he does the three or four things you want and none of the things you don't want. There's like five owners that actually do that and have all the money and the enthusiasm and want to let baseball people do baseball things and make like good hires. Like that seems like a pretty short, like pretty coherent list of things you need an owner to do, but very few of them actually do that. And so when you take that and combine it with a big market and a bunch of money and like a team that's already pretty good, like there's no, they're not like a total disaster. It's like, well, yeah, that's like a top five job in baseball right now. Cause a lot of the other ones are like the Yankees. They got a, a lot of like sort of bean counters in the upper management that don't actually let you spend all the money. Like the Dodgers are obviously one of those teams. The Rays are a great place to work with a great owner, but they have no money. Like all of a sudden, like the list of teams that have all of the qualities this Mets job has is really short. Yeah, you gotta love when the rich guy says, "Hey, listen, uh, I want to win. It's about the fans. I'm not worried about the money because I make my money in my other jobs." I mean, if you're a Mets fan, you gotta go. That's music to my ears. This guy wants to win. Yeah, to put it in context, Steve Cohen owns the Mets. He owns pieces of art who are worth more than some other teams. Like that's how much money he has. That he could just go sell a piece of art and go sign Francisco Lindor, cover ten years of a contract, and not have to do any sort of fancy accounting. Like other owners don't have that kind of money. Yeah, it's uh, it's it, it's going to be fun to watch. I mean, uh, and we'll be rooting for our guy Sandy Alderson because he's a uh, he's a great baseball man and, and and just a great person. Hey, let's end on this. Uh, one more guy for us. Uh, I don't see him coming back to the A's. Uh, he had a terrific shortened season. That's Liam Hendricks. How do you see his market? He's another one of those guys that in a normal year, he's like a specific type of uh, player that when it's like the, you know, whether they have closing experience or not, like the elite reliever that is not, you know, 36 years old, that market is anywhere from three to five years, 12 to $15 million a year. So then you're talking, you know, from 30 to 60 million, uh, depending on the exact uh, circumstances of the market. And so with him, I think he's in a similar spot that Simeon's in, which is he's probably going to have to settle for two or three years because uh, I think he's going to go for a bigger guarantee because this is his big shot at the uh, bite at the apple. I don't think he wants to take a one-year deal and hope that he shoves again the same way he has before. So I would say two or three years, anywhere from, you know, 10 to 15, maybe 17 million, somewhere in there. Uh, and, is, you know, is arguably the best reliever on the market. So if there is a, you know, big market team that wants to add a reliever at the high end, you know, similar to Adam Ottavino or Zach Britton with the Yankees, like some teams just hit the offseason and say, we need to get a, a dominant reliever. Boston is a great example. They need to add probably five relievers. So if they want a high end guy and they've got some money, they're going to be willing to go multiple years. But again, there hasn't really been a lot of markers of where the market is right now. It's just been sort of one year deals and small contracts. We don't know where the top of the market is. And Semyon and Hendricks are both like sort of on the tail end of that top 10 that I think they're going to wait until some numbers get set in the market to figure out where they stand. Cause they're, they are worried that it's going to be way lower than they think. They're hopeful that maybe, you know, in the same way that Patrick Corbin seems to get overpaid a couple summers ago, relative to what some other guys got, they're hoping they're the guy that gets lucky that gets overpaid a little bit relative to their expectations. Actually one more, my, my, my producer, Cody, very interested in how is all this. And I know this is a tough one to answer, and we don't even know what minor league baseball is going to look like. We don't even know what kind of schedule. We just know a lot, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of teams are going to get cut. Um, how do you view minor league baseball for 2021? So this is another thing I think I'm actually going to write about soon because it was it was floated to me by a couple of scouts and it sounds like an, an interesting idea. I don't know if it'll actually happen in practice. the The concept of what it looks like it's going to happen right now is every team will have one DSL team, one rookie ball team at their spring training complex, and then the four full season teams. So depending on which team it is, they're cutting anywhere from one to four teams, depending on how many teams have had, uh, clubs have had in the past. Uh, so that then means the associated number of players, you know, 20, 30 guys per roster up to four teams, that could be 100 players. These teams don't see those 100 players as all non-prospects. So that means there are some prospects, and of course if the draft gets shortened as well, 
there's a number of guys getting drafted in the 20, 25th round that end up being good big leaguers that now like the draft won't go that far. Um, so that means there's a bunch of fringe uh, sort of prospects that maybe aren't worth a ton of money, but some of them, you know, just turn into good players. And some players that aren't prospects at all turn into good players. So where do those players go? Presumably the independent leagues, which it sounds like MLB will help, you know, prop up a bit. The question then becomes, now we've got some scouts have gotten uh, cut back as well, along with some coaches. Is there an enterprising independent league owner who will then start scooping up the best of the let go coaches and scouts and then eventually get to the point where if you are a second or third round pick and you're going to be, you know, walk into a farm system and be the 35th best prospect somewhere and not get a ton of attention, but you'll get some. Are you better served to go to an independent league where you are their best prospect and you get the most attention and their player development process may be even better than some of the teams that would have drafted you? Is there eventually... A, a system where the same way that Carter Stewart we saw come out of a junior college and decide to go to Japan instead of going in the second round and being sort of, you know, a second tier prospect, does an independent league team eventually get powerful enough, have enough backing to then develop into a legitimate replacement uh, for entering the draft and just going with as much money with the best team that you can get offered in the draft and take your path that way. And then the answer to the end of that would be essentially a soccer style transfer process where instead of what normally happens to the independent leagues is if a team and a big league affiliated team wants to uh, sign you, there's like a nominal fee, like three, $5,000 that you pay um, just to get the player. What if essentially a second round pick, let's say Tommy Mace out of Florida who turned down second round money this year, went back to Florida is going to reenter the draft as a 22 year old. What if he gets 1.2 million to go to the Sugarland Skeeters and plays in Texas for a couple of years, and then when he would be in Double A AA or Triple A, a team's got to you know purchase his rights from the team for 10 million dollars, and that then becomes like the way that you know sort of Moneyball and soccer works, where you just kind of buy players when they're um, undervalued and then sell them when they're overvalued, or you know when you can get them at a market rate and the teams there's some competition to bid for them. That's the sort of function that should exist as an answer to what is happening in baseball, because as I'm saying, all of these sort of prospects, scouts, coaches, teams, uh, small towns, all of these are getting left out. That's the way that the market should react to fill in all these holes. If MLB stands in the way of that happening in some way, people that I talked to about this plan seem to think that it is like a little bit of a long shot of it actually happening, but agreed like, yes, this would be the market correcting itself. This is what should happen. So I, I will investigate that more and write more about it. But that's sort of the that's the idea that I'm interested in. Well, fascinating stuff. We truly appreciate your time. Good luck with the wedding. Uh, enjoy. And then uh, let's talk in December. Yep. I'll be waiting for the call. And last, Mark Carrick from The Athletic joined us and really has good insight on what's going on with the New York Mets as they are going to be the most fascinating team in the offseason they've got money to spend they don't want to talk about the pandemic they're looking to go get free agents they've got an owner who's coming in who hasn't been affected and he's got a lot of cash so uh let's find out about the new york mets and major league baseball with mark carrick earlier today we went to new york and caught up with mark carrick national baseball writer for the athletic and we just started talking and uh Next thing you know, we were vibing, we were rolling, and we were talking about baseball and the offseason and the total unknown. Yeah, you're not the only one. I think there's an entire industry in the same boat. And, you know, we're talking about free agency right now, right, because it opened and people want to talk about it. But really, it's hard to even have that discussion until December 2nd, and that's the non-tender deadline. And there are so many players that are going to become available on that date. Um, you know, everyone I talk to in baseball, they describe it as a staggering number. So clearly much, many more than usual. Well, you flood the market with talent, and that fundamentally changes the market. So I, already, right, and we haven't done anything except add players. So that's, what, a month from now? So this thing is going to move slowly, Chris. I, I think that's the one thing we can – uh, bank on is that whatever happens in this offseason, it's not happening until later down the road. You know, the business of baseball, and I don't think a lot of fans kind of know how it works, and essentially what happens is, is that the organization will give the front office parameters into how much they can spend, and each organization is different. And that's how you're able to go out into free agency and retain your own players or bring new players in and, and however you go about building your organization. 
You know, the thing about this year is, when will you think, I don't even know how to ask you this because I don't think there is an answer. We don't know when they're going to be able to come up with budgets of what 2021 will be like for these front offices to spend. Yeah, I, I think typically by now, teams have a better idea of it. But the way you described it is generally how it works. Now, there are some teams that will actually be very flexible with that, which is kind of tough if you're in the front office and you're trying to plan for it. Okay. I mean, I covered a team for years that was that way in the Mets where, um, you know, it was sort of this number, then it wasn't. Uh, oh, by the way, there's more. Oh no, there's less. Like it, I mean, it was all over the map. So, um, but yeah, I think your point, your general point stands. I mean, this really becomes a matter of how much risk tolerance do people have. Um, and that's going to, the answer to that's going to change from team to team because everybody's just got a different circumstance. There is a couple of exceptions out there, but for the most part, um, there's going to be a lot of guessing and a lot of time passed before I think we start to see any moves and any real sense of what this market really looks like. Well, the Amazons just got really, really interesting. And bringing in Steve Cohen as, as he buys the team, he's got, he's got a... He's got a far bigger wealth than the Wilpons had, and he comes in, and I mean, I don't know what kind of splash he's going to want to make, but just, I mean, the fact that he got he got on Twitter, started talking to the fans, you know, Mets fans have been unhappy for a long time, and they've always felt like the little brother of the Yankees. How are Mets fans feeling today? Yeah, there there's some people comparing this to their wedding day or uh, when their kid was born. Uh, you know, I think, well, I grew up in the East Bay. I was an A's fan growing up. Uh, then I ended up covering the Mets. Um, they're not all that different, honestly. Like, as far as just how they perceive one another or, or each other, um, you know, self-perception, I should say. Like, it, there is that dynamic of big brother, little brother. It's a little exaggerated because the city here is bigger, but, like, it's the same general idea. So... Imagine waking up and like the budget there is exactly the same or more than what's going on in San Francisco. And I think that's the feeling that Mets fans have taken with them uh, into this week. And, and, you know, they're going to be there for a while. It's a honeymoon period, frankly. So I I think what's intriguing is that Steve Cohen, unlike everybody else, is coming into this with a lot of money. You know, he wasn't in the game during all of these losses and revenue. So, you know, he's already a very wealthy guy. Uh, he's also not coming at it where he hasn't lost a nickel on this yet, you know, aside from the purchase price, okay? So, and then you've got a market where there's opportunities everywhere if you're one of these people that has some funds or some flexibility. So, um, you know, it, it would be very easy to be like, well, he can just go and splash around and just sign the top three agents, right? Go get Bauer, go get Real Muto, go get Springer, and certainly... That's one way to do it. But you have to remember, too, uh, there's not many ways in baseball to get rid of salary. And, that, and one of them is trades. And if the Mets are willing to take money in trades, that I, I think that just opens up uh, another major opportunity for them. So there's a lot of different ways they can go. So he's a big Mets fan. And so he buys the team. He's got a lot of cash. So obviously, you know, you're, you're going to have people that are happy. Uh, take us through the situation. Wasn't following it all that much, but Mayor Bill de Blasio was trying to step in because city fields on city land potentially could block this thing. And then what Steve Cohen opened up his pocketbook and spent like 17 million for New York businesses to help them get back on their feet to make de Blasio go away. I, I, I've, I've heard a little bit about it, but since you're boots on the ground there, so the, the new owner had basically had to pair off, uh, pay off the mayor to make this thing happen? I don't know how all of that worked, to be honest with you, because that became like political football realm. Because, yeah, there, as you mentioned, right, City Field, all that area actually in Flushing is actually a city park from a legal sense. And that's what gave Bill de Blasio some leeway to, you know, create this you know, illusion that he could step in and block the sale. Now, Here's the thing, like, how real was that? I, I still am not clear because when, you, you know, legally anyway, it just it seemed like such a far out notion to step in and do it. Just because you can do something technically doesn't necessarily mean that practically it's possible. And it felt like that's what this situation was. 
Um, as far as Steve Cohen and philanthropy, I mean, the guy's worth $14 billion and just bought one of the 30 baseball teams and one of the two baseball teams in New York City. Philanthropy is going to be a part of it one way or the other. So, uh, you know, to see it as some kind of shakedown, I, I, honestly, I don't know if I see it that way. This just feels like it's politics, it's New York, there's egos involved, and here's how, how it ended up shaking out, which at the end of the day becomes kind of like a footnote. And then on the flip side, you look at the New York Yankees in their offseason, and they're not looking to break the bank. What, what do you expect from the Bronx Bombers this offseason? Well, I think they're going to have to try to retain DJ LeMayhew. Um, that, that's probably their top priority immediately. Um, here's a player that, you know, when they signed him, there wasn't even a spot for him necessarily. And he goes on and becomes maybe their best, most consistent offensive player. Um, and when you look at the names on that roster, that, that's kind of a big statement to make. Yet that's exactly what happened. So I think they're first order of business is to make sure that he stays there. They've offered him a qualifying offer, obviously, because he's a free agent. Um, but, you know, they're going to have to figure something out there, and I feel like everything else flows from that. Uh, clearly, they need some pitching to at least explore that market. I think they've got decisions to make at catcher with Gary Sanchez. Um, you know, I think their bullpen, uh, which I think was supposed to be a strength for them, when you really look back at it, just wasn't as deep. Uh, as they, they needed it to be, certainly. So I think they're going to be exploring some places to strike there. When you know, we're talking about the market earlier and how flooded it is, um, I, I don't think there's another part of that market that has more available talent that can really help a team than the relief market. So I, I expect them to kind of play in that area too. You know, you mentioned DJ LeMayhew, and I think of a guy like Tommy LaStella, who the A's traded for, and uh, really help the A's down the stretch. These guys who actually make contact, hit with runners on, because that's the one thing that's kind of hurt the Yankees, and it's hurt the A's, and it's hurt the Rays. You know, everybody gets to be this three-true-outcome team where you're either hitting a home run, striking out, or walking, and it's just so refreshing to have a guy that just hits, and that's what DJ LeMahieu does. Tommy LaStella obviously is not the same player, but kind of in that mold, that player's kind of coming back to where people realize, you know, we need somebody who can actually hit with runners on scoring, hit with runners in scoring position. I'm not sure they ever went away, to be honest with you, because what you're describing is something that's hard to find. Why do we think they're so good? Because they don't grow on trees. The guys that make contact and hit it hard aren't available everywhere. And maybe it was a little different years ago, but I don't know, like how many of those types of guys are out there really and truly, right? And it's why they're good. Why DJ LeMahieu is going to get paid because he's scarce. So I don't know if they've ever gone away, but maybe to your point, I would think that teams are starting to maybe re-examine that value a little bit more now. You know, we start looking at these new managers. Just I want your opinion on Tony LaRussa. Uh, coming back, you know, stepping back into uniform for the first time since 2011 with the White Sox, and then AJ Hinch suspensions over, and now the skipper of the Detroit Tigers. Yeah, that's uh, I kind of expected it, if anything, to go the other way. I, you know, AJ Hinch seemed to be someone who made a lot of sense for the White Sox, and when you look back at it, when the White Sox had their opening come about their GM had talked about wanting somebody with recent world series experience. So really there's only a couple of guys that were going to be available that fit that mold. And, and it was Alex Cora and AJ Hinch. So clearly the, you know, and this is what happened where the owner stepped in and said, you know what? I want Tony in there. Uh, and you know, as you know, it's a sport where relationships matter. And Tony La Russa is a guy that Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox, had a long-standing, deep relationship with. So I, that's how he ends up there. And then, um, you know, I think AJ and, and eventually Alex Cora, it just felt like, despite the fact that they're on suspension, amongst the people that actually choose managers that decide, uh, okay, here are the people that are on our list. Amongst that group of people, I mean, just from the reporting that I did over, over the summer, 
uh, it felt to me like they, they were content to say, you know what, they served their time. Um, if, if they're clear to go, then there should be nothing to disqualify them from being hired. That's clearly different from what I think a lot of folks in baseball might feel and certainly fans sitting at home might feel, which I think is the fascinating part is that, okay, like the fans and, and a lot of folks in baseball like just didn't sit well with them. Uh, yet the people where they've got to make the call and make the hire, they seem to see it a whole different way. And so, um, you know, I think AJ gets hired, what, two days after the suspension's up. So, um, you know, I think it just speaks to the fact that, again, the decision makers in baseball kind of see this case closed. I think we can agree that it's a little more complicated when you ask other folks. And a little north of you in Boston, I actually saw on Twitter today, there's five finalists. Well, I, if you've got five guys, I'm not sure if you really have finalists at this point. I think you may need to narrow it down from there. But uh, what do you expect that job in Boston? Because uh, we really don't understand the direction under Heim Bloom. We're used to them being big time players, um, but I don't know what they're going to spend. And you know, you let you know you end up getting rid of Mookie Betts. What do you expect uh, from the dot from the uh, not from the Dodgers from the uh, Red Sox job? Well, I expect that they're going to hire Alex Cora and that whatever finalist names have been floated out there are a matter of making this process look like they actually went through a process. But my understanding is that the owners up there are very fond of Alex Cora. They always have been. Clearly, they are. They hired him. And when you look back at when he was fired uh, and listen to what those people were saying in that room the day that he was dismissed, it was really hard to tell whether Alex had quit or Alex was fired. So I, I think that resonated with a lot of people. Was like if you listen to the messaging, um, I think from the jump, it's very it's been very clear that the owners have an affinity for Alex Cora. And so now that he's off suspension, I, I'd be uh, would not be surprised if he lands right back there in Boston. Well, we always like bringing guys from the Bay back on to our show who grew up here in the Bay area. Where'd you grow up in the East Bay and where'd you go to school? Yeah, I, went, I, I grew up in Pinole. So I uh, went to Pinole Valley high school and then uh, actually Contra Costa college and then the university of Nevada. So I was uh, a Westerner until work, you know, ended up coming out East, but um, you know, a lot of friends and family still back home and uh, you know, my brother's a season ticket holder for the A's and um, he fills me in on what's going on there pretty much every day. <laughs> so, um, That's awesome. Like I can get away from it, but never really get away from it, if you know what I mean. Well, you know, I think, you know, when you grow up an A's fan, it's always going to stay with you because the organization, so it's so special, it's so interesting, it's so different. And, you know, it's great to have you on the program. And, and what a lot of people don't understand, because not everybody out West gets out to New York, I mean, just the fundamental difference of everything on the West Coast versus especially New York and New York City. Wow, it's like hard to believe we're in the same uh, we're in the same country. <laughs> yeah, there's there are differences for sure, but you know, as I the longer I live here, the more I start to see what's the same. And and what's nice about it is that a lot of the good parts are exactly the same. So um, I'd even say it about people that watch the game. Uh, I think. People that grew up in the Bay Area, I'm 40, right? So I, I grew up there before interleague. Like, you could watch both teams, and I think that was a special thing. And people that grew up watching baseball in the Bay Area, I think they treasure stuff like that. And you know what? It's not that much different from people in New York. So, um, yeah, I think I, the more I look at it, man, it's like the commonalities are what, what, what really stands out. You know, let's end on this. You know, kind of what we've seen the last couple of years, how – you know, we start to see free agent signings past the winter meetings. And I think we're going to see, we're not going to have a winter meeting. So, you know, it's not always bad for baseball that we have news through December, January, February, get spring training going. Cause usually there was kind of a dead time after the winter meetings. I, I think there's going to be zero dead time this off season. Yeah. I think what it really, really is going to pick up, to be honest, is probably around January 1, right? Right when it starts to the next year. And I think at that point, you have, you know, a couple more months to kind of sort out the picture. So I think that's what, whenever you have uncertainty, more time is better for you to get a handle on, all right, how many fans are going to be in the stands, if any? 
When is this season probably going to start? Because these are the fundamental questions that you've got to have even a ballpark answer for before you start dipping in and making major commitments. So will there be signings? Maybe I think you'll get a stray signing here or there, but it's not going to be the ones that impact the rest of the market. I think those happen later on um, in the process. We saw it a couple of years ago, right? Like, I mean, we saw signings leading up to spring training. Um, it wouldn't shock me to see it play out that way again. Hey, we really appreciate the time. Great to bring you back home and let's do this again soon. Sounds good, Chris. Well, that'll do it for A's Unfiltered. We'd like to thank Eno Saris, Kylie McDaniel, and Mark Carrig. Now back to A's Cast, powered by iHeartRadio. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.